Welcome Trauma Thrivers, lovely to see you and a special thanks to Benjamin for coming and being the first person ever to sit on the sofa and be interviewed for the group and to give us his time. So I know that there will probably be lots of questions that you've got to ask, which if you do have any, please just drop them in the forum and maybe we can get Benjamin to come online and have a look at them after, because I'm sorry this is not live, but we may do a live one at some point in the future. So today, really, I wanted to get the ins and outs of Benjamin about his new book, but let me start by... Do you mind introducing yourself, Benjamin, just to the Trauma uh, Thrivers group and saying yeah, sure. who you are and kind of what you do? Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, well, my name is Benjamin Fry and I'm a trained psychotherapist. Uh, I've also been, um, I guess it's fair to say, a, uh, a psychiatric patient, um, somebody who was in hospital and discovered that I had PTSD and then discover treatment for PTSD and trauma and attachment and developmental trauma, complex PTSD and all those good things. And in doing so, I discovered uh, methods that we're now aware of, but 10 years ago I wasn't. And I set up a clinic called Chiron House to deliver these methods in a residential setting. And from that, we've developed more um, more offerings at Chiron House. Now we've got a clinic, and it's called Chiron Clinics, with an outpatient service and so on. And what I used to do, I used to run the clinical side of um, the clinic. And I focus more on psychoeducation than one-to-one -one treatment. I developed a series of lectures and talks that we would give to people for assessments and to clients who are in treatment. And then I decided one day that I really should write all of this down, um, which was bafflingly difficult in the end. It only took me five years, but got there. And Amazing. that's the book that we're going to be talking about called The Invisible Lion. So uh, that's kind of me and where I am today. Okay, thank you for that. And, and I suppose it would be really interesting for the audience, perhaps, because I know that half of the group are kind of clinicians mm -hmm. um, or therapists or uh, understand about the nervous system more. But actually, I think your passion and perhaps mine too, sorry, clinicians, is to really speak to the lay people because you and I have both had histories where, you know, I've been sectioned in a psychiatric hospital, not the Priory, um, but an old asylum in Epsom in the old days. And without knowing anything at all, really, apart from the last 10 years about trauma and the nervous system. So I'm really keen for the people out there that really don't know what's happening to their mind and body and how those connect and how what dysregulation means and how therapy i suppose is coming more much more along the lines now of actually as your book says treating a nervous system disorder mm -hmm. and i wonder if you can say really for people that are watching what start off by saying what didn't work for you because <laughs> i know that we met a long long time ago mm. and i also and I hope you don't mind me saying, remember seeing you 
when I was in a particular hospital and you were going through your period of unwellness and then following your journey as I have over the years, I think that's really inspiring for people out there to hear a little bit more about that and what why conventional treatment didn't really work for you because mm. I think a lot of our audience are on that route or they've tried it. Mm. What didn't work for you? Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm laughing because almost nothing worked for me. Uh, so I think it's, I mean, it's almost exhausting to list the things that didn't work for me. No. But talk therapy, CBT, hospitalisation, lots of efforts at medication. Um, I went to see a spiritual healer. I had an exorcism. Um, I went to church. Oh. I went to... I'm laughing I with mean, you, you know, because I just relate and yeah. resonate so much. I think that, you know, the the common experience is one of desperation and yeah. a sense that I was really suffering. And I was suffering from something that was... Didn't feel like it belonged to me. Yeah. It felt like... Um, I mean, like, you know, if you've got a fever and you've got a flu, you you feel terrible, but you don't feel like you are terrible. No. It's just that something is wrong with you. And yeah. That there's, I mean, it's almost like something's inside of you or your body's not really functioning properly, whatever it is. Um, and what you want is you want a remedy for your fever. You yeah. want to find someone who knows what's wrong with you and can help you fix it. And so this is how I felt. And I think one of the one of the kind of existential problems with this idea of mental illness is that there's a sense that these symptoms almost kind of belong to us. Like yes. They define us, like yes. that's who we are. Yes. And I felt very much like I wasn't myself. Um, not that I was myself and that, the, you know, I had, like I was an anxious person. I was a person who was suffering from something. Yeah. Um, and so when I discovered in America, in a treatment center there, this idea of, um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, it was one of the reasons I wrote the book is it's confusing what the ideas were. They, yeah. When you in, encounter this, you, you talk to different people about different things. And they've all got different languages and different ways of explaining it. But fundamentally, what resonated with me was the idea that the problem was as much as anywhere in my body, because when I felt anxious, I felt it in my whole body. Yeah. When I felt depressed, I was completely... Uh, you know, I was paralyzed yeah. all over. Yeah. And so I I really liked this idea. It really made sense to me. It resonated with me that there was something that could be, that was greater than just the the individual symptom that could that then people say is associated with this idea called a mind, which yeah. I, I've got to I don't even know what that means. Well, I don't think any of us know what no. it means. You know, I really resonate with that to what is mental health? Mm-hmm. What is mind? Mm-hmm. Could somebody point to it? Because uh, it doesn't make sense. Well, you can't autopsy a mind. No. But you can pull the nervous system out of a dead body, literally. It's a physical system. Yeah. So uh, I started to understand the work of Peter Levine and then Stephen Porges. Can we explain Um, who they are, just if people don't know who Peter Levine and Stephen Porges are? Well, Peter Levine was a pioneer in looking at... I'll probably get this wrong, but... um, animal physiology mm-hmm. and animal neurobiology yeah and then uh, transferring what he found there to the idea of that similar things were happening for humans yeah 
Um, I think he was a rolfer and he did a PhD in something to do with animal physiology. And then he did a PhD in psychology, I think. So at a similar time and separately, um, Stephen Porges was a um, academic researcher. Yes. Nothing to do with treatment. No, wasn't a clinician, isn't a therapist, isn't a doctor. Just an academic researcher also looking at anatomy. And they both, from different directions, I think, discovered similar things. And there's lots of other people who are working yeah. around the same era. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, Dan Siegel. Yeah, uh, Rothschild. Yeah, yeah. Rothschild. Um, Pat Ogden. Pat Ogden. Yeah. The, the, there was a kind of emerging community of people who were tackling the problem we've just been talking about, yeah. really, which is that treatment doesn't work and there's something missing. Yeah. And they were discovering that the... Um, the way I like to explain it is it's like a chain of dominoes. Yeah. So what traditional psychiatry or psychology is trying to do, it feels to me, is to lift up the final domino. So if you're on a lot of heavy medication, it's like having a really strong person lift up that final domino. Yes. All the other dominoes are still leaning on it. Yeah. So it's a terrible struggle. Yes. Uh, same, I suppose, with psychology. You might be going one or two dominoes further back on the chain. Yeah. When you look at the nervous system, I think you go really, really far back. Yeah. And you maybe even right back to the beginning of the first domino that fell. And if you can pick that one up, then all the other ones stand up on their own. So, uh, you know, for example, in the clinic, what we notice is that when people do really successful restorative work on their nervous system, they then spontaneously say things like, I feel like I'm over-medicated and I should take yeah. less medication. Yeah. And, you know, I think this gives justification to this idea that if, you, if you're working in earlier up the chain of dominoes, you can have a greater influence on the whole system. Okay. Because everything's kind of related to everything else. But it is complicated because there's a circular aspect to it as well, which is that the more dysregulated we are, the more we freak ourselves out, the more yeah. we have the kind of thoughts that seem catastrophic, and then that itself becomes a threat which then hits our dysregulated nervous system, which then sets us off again. Yeah. So there, are, there are, you can work on any one of the dominoes and none of it's invalid. Yes. But when you ask me what didn't work for me, I mean, the answer is really mostly everything because okay. I was so severely uh, dysregulated. dysregulated and my system was so out of control. Yeah. That the idea of, you know, talking about, I mean, you know, I remember like CBT therapists would say, well, what thought were you having before you had a panic attack? And it's yeah. just, I mean, my, yeah. my body was out of control. It's yeah. like saying to someone with a 105 degree fever, yeah. what did you have for breakfast? Yeah. Like, yeah. who cares? <laughs> so, so what did work? What did you start doing? Because was, um, it, was it the Meadows that you Yeah, so to? I was in Melody House, which was an aftercare unit yeah. in Meadows, which yeah. is now closed. Okay. Um, but we copied it. I mean, I copied it. Yeah. Karen House, that was yeah. the whole point, just okay. to do something similar. Yeah. So what I did there was... Um, EMDR, okay. somatic experiencing, yeah, and group work, which was based on principles of how to how to connect safely with people, right? Which really worked on the nervous system. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. what what does a dysregulated nervous system feel like in connection with others? Yeah, um, and the answer, as you probably know, it feels pretty terrible. Yeah, because. Absence is a threat, but also connection is a threat. Yeah. There's very little chance of finding a safe place to be. Yeah. Uh, so that was modelled really nicely in groups. And also we did a few other things. Like we were we were told to go to a 12-step meeting every day. Okay. Which again, is just another way of regulating your nervous system yeah. in a group setting. Which one did you 
Find... Uh, we went to everything. <laughs> we had okay. to go to one every day. <laughs> At least one. Um, I mean, I had to pretend I was an alcoholic to go to AA. Oh, really? To, okay, but yeah. It's fine because it's a recovery community. Everyone's, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we know with, and I know you don't like the word trauma, and mm. perhaps we can go on to this, that obviously with a dysregulated nervous system, mm. a lot of us use either behavioural coping strategies or addictions sure. or self-medicate in some way anyway. Well, you've got to regulate somehow. Yeah. And if totally. you haven't got it on board to regulate yeah. from the inside out, then you're either going to just crack up or regulate from the outside in. Yeah. So, yes, you're right. You can use substances and behaviours. Yeah, That's yeah. pretty yeah. much it. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, if you look at our planet... Yes. Every great industry and every great source of wealth actually comes from selling regulating strategies. Yeah, it does. It does. So even the modern tech boom. Yeah. When you think about Facebook, people use Facebook to regulate. They yeah. use their iPhone to regulate. Yeah. Uh, it used to be alcohol and cigarettes. More yeah. people are using alcohol less now, apparently, the younger yeah. generation, because they're all on their phones. They yeah. don't need it. Yeah. And before Look at that, the boom of coffee. What was it? TV. Yeah. And, and coffee and alcohol. Yeah. Up, down. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all the time. Stimulating or yeah. depression. Depression. So it goes on and on. And then, yeah. you know, I guess you've got pornography and then you had, um, you know, even prostitution. But travel is another yes, one. Yes, totally. Um, it's a big industry. Totally. People use it to regulate. Yeah. It goes on and on. Yeah. So how long were you at the Meadows for? Uh, well, I was in the main treatment centre for five weeks. Okay. And then I was in aftercare for three months. And what did you do in the EMDR? What did you, uh, what did you go back to? Well, I went back. It was quite weird. I went EMDR. back. EMDR? Yeah. I almost, it was almost really like taking a very linear journey from being about five months old to about two and a half. Right. Um, over many, many sessions. And I think that's why I was so unwell, because yeah. I was very triggered. Yeah, in, in pre-verbal memories. In, in a lot of different yeah. pre-verbal memories. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a yeah. lot of problems I'd had at that age. So yeah. it started with my mother was given a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. Then she was dying. Then she died. And how old were you? I was, well, by the time she died, I was 11 months old. Wow. <clears throat> and I was five months when she was diagnosed. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's hard to know. Heart wrenching, even now. Well, you know, for you, for you know, it gets better. Like, yeah, <laughs> I know. Thank goodness. It's Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. But um, it was. I was. You know, I was in a very bad place yeah, at the time. Yeah. But then what happened? And some of the things I didn't know. So then I went to stay with some other people. Then I went to stay with some other people. And then my father would come and visit. And one of the things that emerged in EMDR. So he would come and visit for the weekend. Right. And then he would leave. Wow. And I thought he was going home yeah. to my mother and wouldn't take me with him. Wow. I had no idea about this. No. Um, and at the time, what had triggered this episode was the global financial crash. Okay. Which has also affected me. Yes. And it affected my plans to buy a house. Wow. And I had this enormous sense of being triggered by this issue of housing. So, yeah. I mean, it's a normal human need to need yeah, a house, yeah. but I was way out of control. I mean, it got to the point where if I saw an estate agent's board, I would become kind of semi-unfunctional. Okay, okay. And yeah. I was thinking about this the other day because I was driving past someone's house that I remember going to and feeling very triggered by the fact they'd moved into this house. And now I couldn't care less. Right. 
And it's very obvious that I was so triggered in that place of wanting to go home. Yes. That any idea of loss of home yeah. was yeah. making me very unwell. Yeah. And it wasn't yeah. that I couldn't bear it. It wasn't that I was kind of like, I mean, people often say, People with mental health problems, they just don't have the, you know, they don't have any courage or they're not strong or they're being a bit of a wimp about Which is things. absolutely ridiculous. Or, you know, they it? want other people to look after them, whatever <clears> it is. <throat> but that wasn't the case at all. No. I mean, I, you know, I could, I'm actually fairly low maintenance. I could live in a rented um, studio flat for the rest of my life. And be no quite happy, yeah. But not when I was 13 months old no. and needed my mother. No. That's not a time when you can take that on. Yeah. And no yeah. one's looking after yeah. you and God knows who you're with and what's yeah. going on. So yeah. um, it was very revealing, actually, because it was one of the things that was so baffling was why I was so unwell. I mean, yes, of course, you know, I had real world problems, but so what? Yeah, but it isn't it, as you say, and, and as I say to clients, that, you know, our central nervous system can take so much, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it gets stacked and stacked and stacked. And at some point, you know, something can trigger it and it will just, you know, it can't, it's almost yeah. like it can't take any more. At some point, it's going to take us back to well, that original trauma. I often think about event. it as having... Um, like a building with loads of gunpowder stacks yeah, in yes, the basement. Yes. So you've got a keg of gunpowder. Yeah. Depending on your attachment wounds. Well, I think and of maybe them we as, ought to explain attachment to yeah. some people. I mean, the way I look at it is you've got unfinished business from responding to threat. So you you know, if someone drops a plate in the kitchen behind you, you'll yeah. notice that you you jump. You you kind of orientate yourself in two different ways your body starts to change your yeah. heart will probably start beating heart faster yeah but your brain is also then thinking what's the problem where is it and what you'll notice is that your brain will then realize it's just a plate that fell down but your body's still going yeah and the body takes a little longer to recover than the than the cognitive system to figure out what's going on so these things are not the same they're on two different tracks yeah and what can happen is that the body gets interrupted sometimes by the brain or sometimes just by the overwhelm of the experience itself. It never really finishes its normal physiological response to whatever was happening. Yeah. And then that becomes frozen into the system, kind of. I mean, that's what we kind of call trauma, really. Yeah, yeah. It's just unfinished reactions to a threat. Yes. Um, and then that's waiting to be finished. And so these are your kegs of gunpowder sitting in your basement. And I think life is a bit like people just randomly wandering around your basement with sparklers. In the dark. Yeah. And yeah that's they, a really good analogy. You know, they'll, they'll run into a keg of gunpowder here or there. Yeah. And then you'll notice it. You'll yeah. feel it. And, of course, what you think it is, you think it's the person with the sparkler because that's all you can see. Yeah. You think it's the sparkler that's making you feel like that. Yeah. But it isn't. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, maybe 1% to 20% to 30% that, but it, most of it is your unfinished business. Yeah. And then we usually don't finish it again. Because yes. we are equally uncomfortable as we were the first time. Yes. And also we've got the person with the sparkler to blame. So yeah. that keeps it focused yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's largely how I see it. And I, of course, what happened to me was many, many, many of these kegs of gunpowder got blown up at the same time. Yeah. And so I became what I would describe as very unwell. Yeah. And was simply just ill. Yeah. And uh, in every possible way. 
And so EMDR and SE, which is Peter Levine Somatic Experiencing Work, yeah. is what helped you out of it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think the group work was very helpful for learning models of safe attachment yeah. and having a kind of prototype, a template for what it would feel like yeah. to feel safe with people. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because the nervous system is so threatened yeah. by abandonment and rejection. Well, and you want to talk about attachment. I think that the, I mean, the, the, the difficulty, the really difficult childhoods are the ones where you have abandonment and overwhelm. Yeah. Um, not necessarily at the same time, but they can be from two different people. Right. And it creates a situation where you're neither particularly um, anxious or avoidant in yes. your attachment. You're both. Yes. And I think it's often called disorganized attachment or yeah. traumatic attachment. Yeah. Whatever you like, but it, it really means you're neither really a love addict or a lover avoidant. You're everything. Yeah. Because... Yeah. <laughs> You can't can be relate, with someone can with that. because they might overwhelm you. Yeah. You can't be alone because you might be abandoned. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's a tough It's one. a double whammy mm-hmm. almost, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So other than, which is huge, the loss of your mum, did mm. you then have other traumas on top of that in your early well, years? Well, my father then got remarried. So right. I, then, you know, I had settled with my mother's friend and her child. Okay. And then I left there a year later to wow. go to, back to my father. Okay. And I went back to the wrong house and the wrong woman, yeah. which I discovered. Yeah, in another there. massive trauma. That's not yeah. helpful. No. Um, and then we kind of all pretended none of this had ever happened. Yeah. Uh, papered over the cracks. And I had what on the surface seemed like a very privileged life. Yes. But all of this was in the basement. Yeah, yeah. So in adult life, I was very anxious. I never really was, I would guess, functional in a way that I could have been. What led you into the therapy world? Because you trained, didn't you? Um, you? You went off and did you? Yeah. Because you were doing entrepreneurial work before. Didn't you have a yeah. nightclub at one point or yeah. something like that? Yeah, I did. I had various small businesses. Yeah. Um, I In my mid-20s, I started having panic attacks. Okay. Um, which you could say were triggered by the end of a relationship. Right. Which, which would have triggered, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. Yeah. And then I started to see a therapist. And eventually she said, Look, you're very good at this. Why don't you do a training as a therapist? Which I thought was a fairly odd idea at the time, but I thought, why not? Yeah. I went to a summer course and. That was kind of, you know, where I got started. And it turns out I was quite good at it. Yeah. And so, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it. I carried on doing other things, um, training a bit and then doing a bit of work. And then I did some media work and people would come and see me. But most of my career has been spent doing consultations or assessments. Okay. Uh, Not really a lot of ongoing work. Yeah. So I became very used to trying to explain things to people in a simple way relatively yeah. quickly. Yeah. Uh, and developed a lot of these, a lot of, I ended up saying the same thing over and over again, like a lot of these metaphors. Um, hence the idea of the invisible lion, which yeah. is like, uh, you know, the idea is that you, people don't really make sense if you see them running down the street, screaming yes. wildly. Yeah. Until you see the lion chasing them. Yeah. And yeah. then they go from looking like a crazy person to someone who looks normal, who you might help. And I think that's really my working model now of what we call mental illness. Yes. Is that actually that body is functioning perfectly normally. Yeah. If you are being chased by a lion, looking panicked and running and not stopping to be polite to people and freaking out and being half dressed is normal. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way the body has evolved to survive threat. Yeah. So it could be that a lot of what we call 
mental poor mental health yes there's actually somebody who's behaving perfectly normally yes late yes yeah and can't finish it yeah so so for lay people listening do you describe or can you describe what fight flight freeze do you talk about flop submit don't mm-hmm. you and then do you talk about fawning and friending the attached part of that yeah can do I mean, okay the... is that one of janina fishers who is another yeah janina's got a great yeah um, working model of these different parts yes these different attachment parts yeah um i think that yeah, one of the things I I've tried to do is make it not too complicated to hold yeah. all these models at the same time. I know, I so know. If you look at it from the anatomy, um, typically what animals will do is they will they will become a little hypervigilant. Yeah. I mean, okay, so imagine an escalating response to threat. Yes. There you are. You're a gazelle. You're eating on the water, on the savanna. Yeah. And there's a sense in the herd that maybe there's a threat somewhere on the horizon. What happens? You become a bit hypervigilant. Yeah. Maybe you notice the threat. And maybe at this point, you might even, let's say you're a young gazelle, you might look for help. So there's your kind of attached part. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're looking yeah. for help. It's like a yeah. cry for help, something yeah. we're very familiar with yeah. as a response to threat. Um, if you're actually facing the threat and there is no help, then typically animals will either run away or they'll fight. Yeah. And that largely depends on an innate sense of whether or not they can win the fight. Yeah. If you're up against a, a stronger opponent who's slower, better off running yeah um but if they're weaker and they're faster you're better off fighting yeah now if neither of those two things work then you get into the realm of overwhelm yes and in that place what you'll see is there's a couple of different responses to overwhelm both of which are often called a freeze response yeah um one is like the classic deer in the headlights where the every muscle is tense yeah and it's like you become so over invested in fighting or fleeing and so pushed so accelerated in that direction that you actually can't move at all yeah um and then there's another response which is when everything goes flaccid okay instead of being tense so it's like the and it's like being you know it's like playing possum for yeah example. So yeah all these metaphors come from the animal world because yeah. you see all this stuff and this is what Peter Levine was studying, I think, which and, is the animal physiology response to that. And you got a clip, just to let people know, on your website, haven't you, of a 20-second yeah. clip of That's this true. very thing happening in the wild, which actually we might be able to edit in sure. so that people can see sure. what we would have done however many years ago mm. before we got the prefrontal cortex involved. Well, it's a very good clip of a, I think it's a gazelle, is frozen, while um, a predator, I think is a hyena or, or even a lion, is trying to eat it. Yeah, yeah. And it looks like it's dead. And then the predator gets disturbed and eventually it kind of comes back to life. Yeah. Now, the, the, the point of it really is that the coming back to life is the completing of the threat response. Yes. And animals do this all the time. So they yes. don't seem to have PTSD. Yeah. Unless they're being eaten every five minutes or every no, day. No, no, they you, discharge if it. If you beat a dog every hour, it'll probably accumulate a lot of unfinished responses. But Can't bear it, to think about. Yeah, Sorry. It, if it just has one problem, and yeah. then it can shake it off and run it off. Yeah. And it's done. Um, the problem with humans appears to be that we've become so complicated and we've got so many systems running that they're now conflicting. Yeah. So that if I start shaking and twitching and wanting to run and there's no predator in sight, another part of me called the prefrontal cortex, which where I do my thinking, yeah, um, is going to tell me I'm crazy and I should stop it. Yeah. So 
the the urgent task of interpreting reality, which is what our logical brain does and keeps us really safe, yeah, um, is disturbed by this apparent response from the body to something that's not there. Yes. And this is why it's important to add in the invisible lion, because if you can see the invisible lion yeah. and the response, yes. then the prefrontal cortex doesn't mind. Yeah. Um, and so the, often the first step to treating trauma and dysregulated nervous system is educating the prefrontal cortex. I agree. And so that's what the book is all about. That's yes. what the, psycho, uh, the, the psychoeducation, yeah. the lectures, the assessments, yeah. they were yeah. all about preparing yes. people's prefrontal cortexes to allow their body and their yeah. limbic system to yeah. do what it's been doing for 100 million years and doesn't need any help doing yeah just needs us to stop getting in our own way yeah so that we can discharge because i don't know what your own emdr experience mm. was or your own journey but mm. i can say in my own journey and my emdr journey and even this week in my journey mm. there are moments of sure discharge mm -hmm. and very often with all the clients you know sometimes the legs will run mm -hmm. the arms will flay sure. that's part of the discharge so if we can get our cortex just to allow the body to do its thing it's amazing well most people would look at that kind of um involuntary action and yes. say this is freaking me out there's something wrong with me yeah but if you've been educated yeah then you look and you think thank god finally yes this is happening yes and really the question is and the question i was asked a lot in treatment was can you let that happen yeah it's like a mantra yeah somatic therapist yes is, okay this seems a bit weird but can you let that happen and if the answer is yes then the body can do its thing and you can heal yeah and the answer is only yes Typically, if you either just trust the therapist or you yeah. trust yourself because you've been educated to know that this is something that's good for you. Yeah. Um, so that's what the, you know, this part of the work's really about. And even in the education, even in there is always or often a part of the prefrontal cortex or the person who is scared to go there mm -hmm. or anxious to go there to kind of drop into what you call the reptilian and the mammalian brain. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I call it reptilian or brainstem and limbic system. Yeah. It's very scary. So how, how did you allow yourself to go there? Um, well, I think the two pillars for me were education and trust. Okay. So... I was educated, you know, I was given this information. Yeah. And then I trusted my therapist. Okay. I believed that my EMDR practitioner knew what she was doing. Yeah. I felt like she was a safe person. Yeah. She was a person who led our groups. Okay. And, the, you know, the connections she modelled in those groups were very, seemed to be very healthy and safe. Yeah. So, um, also I was in residential treatment and so I had a, a very... Strong safety. Net. Yeah, which is but my EMDR good. sessions are incredibly deep. Yes, and uh, you know, wild in the sense of the pain and the yeah. agony, and I mean the screaming, the tears. Yeah. Sometimes even you know the flailing, sometimes yeah. rolling around. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you think about what an infant goes yes. through, if you look yeah. at distressed infants, yes. this is a whole body. Yes, totally out of control experience. Yes. Yeah. And so I had to finish a lot of that. I had to yeah. try to complete um, what was activated in my system, yeah. but not clearing my system. Yeah. And the fact that it was so strong, and it wasn't dormant anymore, but it wasn't leaving, 
was why I was so ill. Yeah. Simple as yeah. that. Yeah. So it's trying to encourage, I think, people that are listening to this or watching it, mm-hmm. what the benefits are of that discharge process in going there, in actually mm. understanding, first of all, that mental health isn't really mental health. It's mm-hmm. kind of neurophysiological health in these days. Mm-hmm. You know, the biology and the physiology is connected to the psychology. You can't separate, yeah. you know, can you? That's that's what we're both well, saying, and I completely agree with you mm-hmm. that it's all a disorder of the nervous system. But it's, I suppose it's about what your steps are and understanding Mm -hmm. what they are in the book because don't you take people through a process of being able to psychoeducate because without the awareness and the knowledge you're you you can't do this Mm -hmm. and then I think your step two because I'm just trying to get people to understand what this process is was reframe Oh, yeah. So basically talk about the gunpowder, don't talk about the sparkler. Okay, okay. The idea is to just get some... If you think about re-educating your brain, what are you going to do differently with your re-educated brain? Um, And one thing to do differently is instead of always making your experience about what someone's doing to you, you can begin to notice what's happening inside me when I'm having experience. So, you know, let's say my girlfriend sends me a message saying, sorry, I can't meet up with you tomorrow as planned. I've got something else I want to do. And my reaction is to feel um, in a strong sense of abandonment and a strong sense of maybe anger and want to fight and then want to text back and say, oh, you know, you always do this to me. I can't stand this anymore. I never want to see you ever again. Um, Another way of doing that is to actually just notice, oh, look, I'm now feeling a strong sense of abandonment. Yeah. feeling very angry. Yeah. I'm even feeling like dumping her. Um, and you could even, in a in a good relationship, this is what we learned in groups, yes. and treatment, you could even share that yes. with someone yes. or even with her. Yes. And so then what you notice is that the experience is located on the inside. And then you start to get curious about, is this really about what's happened today? Or is there, is there an invisible light involved? You know, yeah. what am I really running from here? What am yeah. I really reacting to? Who am I fighting with? Uh, and... Interestingly, then you move on to a next stage. So if you can get curious, yes. if you can get to that point, yeah. then the natural question is, how do I find the lion? Yeah. Right? So yeah. you're right, there are stages. So the first yeah. stage was just educate yourself. Yeah, because without that, I agree why with would you. you yeah. Why would you bother? Yeah. And then the second yeah. stage is use that education to frame your experience differently. The third stage is let's go looking for the lion. Um, and that's done through the body. So okay. You, so so you, how how can we um, explain mm. to anybody watching this how to do that step? Because that sounds brilliant to me. Um, Go looking for the lion. Well, your so your unfinished business responding to an earlier threat will be somewhere in your body. Yeah. And that could be in your head. I mean, it could, but it's not a thought; it's a sensation. Yeah. So you've and do got you a think sensation. the sensations are in the head? Because that's an interesting one. I've had lots well, of clients over the years say that they feel in their head or just behind their eyes, but actually they don't feel in their bodies mm-hmm. at all yet. Well, I I say it could be in your head because yeah. you know if you feel I mean, and anything in your body yes. could also be in your head. Usually, people find it somewhere in their body yeah. below yeah. their neck. Yeah. Um, but it's it's about sensation rather than thought or emotion. Yeah. 
So what you're looking for is you're looking for the places where your body is really calling your attention. And, um, you know, the, interestingly, there's been a long tradition of body psychotherapy, body psychology. I'm really going back to one of Freud's followers, I think, called Reich and, and thereafter. Um, and so people have been aware of the benefit of doing this, but it hasn't really been linked up with theory, hasn't necessarily made any sense. I, mean, I think people would talk about sexual frustration. And yes. That's a reason to go look. You know, there's all sorts yeah. of people make up yes. answers for questions that they feel that they're solving, but they don't know why. Yeah. Um, so there's precedent for this, but really what you want to do is you want to go and look for these sensations. And the chances are the sensations are your clue, your pathway back Okay. So what the limbic system is trying to do. So the limbic yeah. system is a bit of the brain lower down, the animal, the mammal, the reptile brain. Yeah. And it's running a totally different program to the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. I mean, one of the great myths of us is that we are one thing. And so we're not. We have many, many decision centers in our brain. Yeah. And they're all filtered down eventually through the nervous system into an action. Yeah. And the action could be me talking, moving my lips, moving my larynx, or it could be me running out of the room, but it's all action. It's all doing. Yeah. And so from all these decision centers, you get uh, a decision made where something happens. And it's a bit like a hung parliament, like we used to have in England. Yeah. Where everyone argues and eventually something gets done. Have. We used to have a hung parliament, not anymore. <laughs> um, so now you, you have more of a dominant situation, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is the case for most people, is that yeah. the prefrontal cortex is basically... The majority government telling yeah. you what to do and the limbic yeah. system gets squashed down. Yeah. So what you want to do is try and through this education, through curiosity and through investing in looking into the body, um, you get curious about sensation. And this is really, uh, you know, I think Peter Levine's work and it, it built on work of other people that came before him. But you get into sensation and then through that sensation, you find something. And then you've really got the fourth part of the process, which is you see if you can stay with it. Yeah. And that's where you ask the question, you know, can you let that happen? Because yeah. whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And nobody can tell you what's going to happen. Yeah. And maybe nothing will happen. Maybe yeah. you'll feel almost nothing. Or yeah. maybe you'll feel something quite strong. Maybe there'll be a memory. Maybe there'll be an emotion. Maybe there'll be heat. Maybe there'll be cold. Maybe you'll move. Maybe you won't. You don't know. But yeah. I think the point is you're in a much different place to dumping your girlfriend. Yes. And you're, you, you, so you've changed your experience of yourself in the world from being one of running around trying to get the world to do what you need so you feel okay yeah. to being something that gives you the information to find out what it is inside of you that needs attention yes. and then paying attention to it. Yes. And then this will, if successful, change your relationship with the world and change your relationship with yourself because you become more resilient. Yeah. Your nervous system becomes more settled. You become more regulated because you're not carrying around so much baggage. Yeah. It's as simple as that, yeah. really. So once you've just noticed or you've been curious and you've mm. gone into the sensation and you've stayed with the body, mm. what then next happens? Because I've noticed a little bit similarly to EMDR, there is a float back or mm -hmm. a go back with that sensation. Um, well, there's something in the book we call time traveling. Yes, and because... we call it float back, yeah, you know, in sure. hypnosis or in EMDR. In attachment focus work, we will take the present symptom in mm. the body or the sensation in the body and then track it back yeah. and take it back in time as far as you can go without censoring right. it. Yeah. yeah. So I often ask people, like, if you just hold that sensation and float it back in time, yeah. okay. what comes to mind? Yeah. 
Um, and maybe nothing. Yeah. Or maybe something. And it doesn't yeah. really matter. As long as the limbic system is working its way through the you know the animal, the mammal in you is doing yeah. what it needs to do. To do. Uh, but people will quite often find that they something will come to mind. Yeah. And then it's organic and normal to want to talk about it. And there may be some emotion, there may not be. Yeah. It tends to it tends to conclude pretty quickly. Okay. And then And you're not looking for the belief at this stage like we would in EMDR? No, I'm not worried about that. I think think these things clear themselves up. Okay. And the funny thing is that the the way I often try and see if this has been successful for someone is typically they'll start a session with a problem and they'll say, you know, I'm very angry about this email I got at work or I'm angry with my husband, whatever it is. And we'll ask them, well, how much does that bother you out of 10? They'll say 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10. And then you do all of this yeah. and you might end up with, for example, someone saying, you know, I remember when I came home from school when I was eight, my father had gone. And, you know, this is a dramatic memory. There's a few minutes of talking about it, maybe a few tears, maybe a little bit of trembling in the body. And then there's a, you know, release and come to a place of being a bit more peaceful. And then ask, so, you know, there's a problem with your boss in the email. How much does that bother you out of 10 now? And it's amazing. People will yeah. say, you know, anything from one to five. You know, yeah. But someone say two, three out of ten. Yeah. And this has taken maybe ten minutes. Yeah. Or fifteen minutes or yeah. twenty minutes. Yeah. And I say to them, could you ever believe that just by doing talk therapy, this problem you've been carrying around for days has been bothering you every minute of every day for a week could like evaporate so quickly in 10, 15 minutes. Because they've connected it back to the original injury. Well, what they're doing is they're connecting their body to the the original lion. Yeah. So the invisible lion evaporates. Yes. Or, or the imaginary lion in the yes. present day evaporates. Okay. They don't need it anymore. Yeah. And so most of what we're reacting to in the present day is things we're making up as if they're real. Yeah. Because actually we can't see the invisible lion. Yeah. And so we make lions up. Otherwise we feel like we're out of control and we're totally crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And is that the last step of the process? Well, that is, I mean, that's the last step of that fairly simple process. Yeah. I don't want to suggest that this is the cure-all of every mental no, health no, problem that's no, ever happened. No, no. Or that I don't think you are everybody's that. or anybody's treatment could be this simple. But yeah. I think that in the absence of at least knowing this stuff, I don't see why anyone's doing any mental health treatment at all. Because it, this seems to me like just... Um, Mental health 101. Yes. If you if you don't know the basics of the physiology, yeah. or the physiology story, yeah. or the history of this, these developments, um, then you're really working in the dark. These yes, days. totally. So, uh, you, you've got to know this stuff, and you've got to see and believe and experience that at its most basic, yeah, it works pretty well. Yeah, and it can help a lot of people in a lot of situations. Now, of course, there's situations where it's much more complex than this. And, uh, you know, that's why there's some very skilled practitioners like yourself who can help people when just reading a book and doing some self-help wouldn't be enough. Um, and I well, think there's well, also... also because I think if you um, speak a bit more about Stephen Porges's work, mm. there is something about being in relationship with another brain in the room sometimes for some people, isn't it? The role of that therapeutic, you know, relationship and engagement right to right hemisphere Mm -hmm. we can often if somebody is very dysregulated help to regulate that right hemisphere as somebody is 
in relationship with us. So there are some people, I would say that it would be really helpful to get that kind of bonding or, mm. or that closeness of relationship with if they haven't had it, for example, in their early attachment years. Uh, yes, I think if you think about that through the lens of the nervous system, yeah. what we've just been talking about, what you're trying to do yes. is recover from an overwhelm of threat. Yes. So to do that, you're trying to finish a response to threat. And when you finish a response to threat, it feels threatening yeah. because it's like just going back to the original threat. So what would make you more able to deal with threat this time than when you were eight or five or three? Um, and often what helps a nervous system have more capacity and therefore more ability to finish something unfinished yeah. is to feel safe and yeah. to feel safe with someone. Yeah. So lots of people have childhoods where they were with someone but didn't feel safe. Yeah. And that's why there's so much focus for practitioners in making clients feel safe. Yeah. Because really what you're offering is you're offering the scaffolding. Yeah. The kind of, you're lending some resilience from your own nervous system yeah. to the other person. Yeah. And of course, this is what mothers are supposed to do to infants. Yeah. So when you talk about attachment, the original problem is that the, the baby is not sufficiently big enough or old enough to regulate. It's yes. not dysregulated, but it's yes. just... It's just it not, doesn't have the capacity. It doesn't have does the capacity. It? Yeah. So it, it nestles inside the mother's regulation or the caregiver's regulation. Yeah. And because the caregiver is regulated, the baby then learns to become regulated. Yeah. Now, when that doesn't happen, as yeah. it often doesn't happen, yeah. um, it may be that later in life you need to do that reparenting again. Yeah. And so a healthy relationship in a way that's non-threatening is great. So a 12-step meeting, a good 12-step yeah. meeting will do that. Yeah. A good therapy group will do that. Yeah. A good therapeutic relationship. And some normal adult relationships yeah, can, can do, do that. that. Although, agree. as you know, we're magnetically drawn to the relationships which replicate our childhood, which then don't often always work out no. for being regulated. No. Um, but ultimately, what's interesting is that just like the infant, you're, you're looking to regulate the infant so the infant grows up and becomes able to automatically regulate itself and go to school. Yeah. You know, regulate itself for 10 minutes at a time, then an hour at a time, then half yeah. a day at a time, and then a week at a time, and so on. And really, as an adult, the, you know, we, we talk about this thing of reparenting. Yes, you want to get some scaffolding from your support group, from your therapist. But in the end, the scaffolding comes from the inside out. Yeah. And you can get to a point, if you're working successfully with the nervous system, where you get a lot more regulation on board. And it becomes easier and easier to hold your own dysregulated material. Yeah. And actually, it becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? Because I really want this to be hopeful for anybody that's watching, that mm -hmm. you can regulate it. And even in moments of dysregulation, you can actually discharge on your own quite happily. Yeah, sure. You know, so, I mean, I have moments of discharge happen. and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one this week with the dog and... Uh, somebody being attacked by a, my dog keeps getting attacked or mm. was attacked by Rhodesian Ridgebacks yeah. you know so so I'm dysregulated and I know I'm dysregulated because mm. I've gone into a fight flight around them and we met one this week he went I went I got home and I could feel my arms sure. I went oh I'm discharging Oh, okay. and what are your arms trying to do? They're well, trying they're just to fight trying off to, dog, yeah, probably. yeah, Pretty yeah, normal. yeah. You know, and it was just great. Just let it go. Mm -hmm. Let just 
let the discharge happen. Or finish your response. Yeah, finish the, the response. Because the brain has finished the response, yeah, but yeah. the body hasn't. Yeah. So the brain is saying there's nothing to worry about, the dog yeah. is gone, but the yeah. body is just it's not finished. No. And the same in surgery. Yeah. You know, after surgery, I have had to educate mm. people that are nurses and go, no, let me discharge. Yeah, this yeah. is just the body. I want to discharge and allowing it post-surgery mm -hmm. just to do that. But it's kind of like, why don't our, some, some people know that that's the body's response post-surgery? Yeah. Why can't we discharge it? You know. Well, it, I mean, this, this material isn't particularly long or complicated and it should be in every medical yeah, person's training. Yeah, yeah, it, I you agree. Know, it's frightening to think that there's psychiatrists who don't, no, no and they're not necessarily always even that interested. Yeah, but it's very important, and even for general medicine, it's one of Peter Levine's stories. I think at the beginning of his book, Waking um, the Tiger. No, the other one. Oh, in an unspoken yeah, voice. Yes, yes. Um, where he, well I think he was hit by a car, and he was in the ambulance and trembling and shaking and discharging the experience. And I think the story is that the paramedics wanted to give him a shot of value because yeah. they thought he was freaking out. Yeah. And he said, no, don't do that. It's all fine. Yeah. Just, just yeah. Let, me, yeah. let me finish that. Yeah. If a paramedic had read I don't know, my book or anyone's book, yes. it doesn't take them an awful lot of time. No. Um, considering the important work they're yeah. doing, yeah. they would never have tried to do that. They'd look yeah. at this person and think, great, this person is now yeah. going to not have PTSD. Yes. But they'd welcome it. Yes. And you ask the question again, can you let that happen? And that's what the paramedic should be saying to anyone in an ambulance. Yeah. Can you let that happen? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. There's an, yeah. there's an awful lot of basic information that would be good for people to have. So is that your hope for the book? What's your hope now for for what this book can do, what mm. we can, you know, because I'm an advocate and that mm. is what I preach, hopefully, to mm. all of my clients, this kind of material is how that can be dispersed out into the mental health wider community, um, you know, and on more training repertoires and mm. all the rest of it, that this is kind of common knowledge, really. It would be amazing. That would be my hope. I, yeah. I think that if you're in charge of a human, which you are, yeah, then you should have some kind of operating instructions. And if you don't know this stuff, yeah. you have no idea what you're doing. You yeah. have no idea why life is happening the way it is inside of you. Yeah. Um, which seems to me to be quite a difficult way to live. And it's not just in mental health. It's not just in physical health. It's in everything. It's in education. It's in families. It's in relationships. in everything. Yeah. Um, because if you can't see your reality as being separated into two components, what's happening right now yeah. and what's unfinished yes. from before, then everything about reality becomes confusing and everything about what your body's doing becomes confusing and therefore everything about your health becomes confusing and everything yeah. about what your relationships becomes confusing. Yeah. And your thoughts, feelings, ideas, emotions, they, they don't make sense. And humans spend an enormous amount of their time trying to do two things. One is make sense of themselves and the other is change the world around them so they feel better. Yes. So people always want to be richer, thinner, hungrier, yeah. whatever it is. They, yeah. There's always something yeah. they want to do. More powerful. More powerful, yeah. better girlfriend, boyfriend, yeah. or fewer boyfriends, girlfriends, yeah. bigger girls, yeah. smaller girls, all. <laughs> yeah. gypsy, yeah. have a mansion, whatever it is that yeah. works for you, yeah. or you imagine works for you. Yeah. That's where all our effort's going. Yeah. And there's so little effort that goes into cleaning up the mess that's inside us. Yeah. Um, and as you can see, all it does, it leads to dissatisfaction. Uh, it doesn't work. It creates a society which is 
not particularly compassionate or yeah. uh, regulating. Yeah. And in the end, also destroying our world and our planet. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's be a good idea. Yes. If everybody could at least know these kind of things. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that people have to agree with me or others about it, but I just think it's a shame if they don't even know enough to disagree. But also it's about it's about our health overall as a system, I agree. Mm -hmm. And it's about the future of our uh, generations and humanity, if you like, because if we're all going around dysregulated, we are going to create future generations with even more dysregulation. Whereas doing the work and actually looking within and coming back to ourselves and trying to regulate, how then will that impact our children and their children because whichever way you go mm-hmm. how our nervous system is is impacting the next generation and the next generation and sure. i'd like to see that become a lot healthier yeah well you can only if you think about that model of a an infant who can't regulate you, yeah um they need to be regulated by another and so if that other is not regulated, yeah. then it's very hard for the infant to grow up regulated. Yeah. And so dysregulation is a kind of hereditary disease in yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, and that's the study of attachment. I think. So you see, you see why body physiology and attachment are so intrinsically linked, but they're often not talked about in a way that it makes it very clear how or why they're linked. People yeah. talk about trauma and they talk about attachment. They don't really know what they're talking about when they talk about trauma. They don't really know what they're talking about when they talk about attachment. Yeah. And I think if you if you begin to reduce these things down to much simpler ideas, which yes. is animal physiology, yes. uh, the normal responses to threat yes. and whether they're completed or not, yes. and then what that looks like when you get two of these people together and three and four, and when one of them's young and one of them's old, you begin to see that, from those simple ideas, yes, everything that we think we know about, from mental, physical health problems through to attachment, through to relationship problems, love addiction, even things like dissociation, multiple personality disorder, they all actually are logical consequences of those yes. ideas. Yeah, It's like you, you would expect to see that. Yes. Even if you'd nev- never met a human, if you were just told that we have nervous systems with unfinished business that yeah. generally either overreact or underreact and yes. rarely react just right. Yeah. All those things are actually predictable. Yeah. Yeah. And the overreaction and the underreaction we call hyper or hypo arousal. Yeah. And the role of, of coming back into the body and, and equilibrium is the window of tolerance, which That's is the middle window, which is another, where we want people to be. Another schema of language. It's yeah. another schema of language. and some I which... call it over, under and Goldilocks. Oh, the window tolerance is Goldilocks. Yeah. Just right. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's an interesting story, the three bears. Yeah. Because why do these stories carry such weight? Why are we so attracted to these stories? Yeah. Well, it's kind of our experience of life, isn't it? Yes. Everything is too much, too little. Yes. And rarely just right. Yes. Including ourselves. Yes. And on the too much, too little, just right, Mm -hmm. I hope we've provided whoever's watching today with that Goldilocks point (laughs) in the middle. Hope so. Yeah. And if they want any more information, I think Mm. they can look at either your website or is it www.theinvisiblelion.com? Yeah. Okay. 
where there's downloads. Mm -hmm. There's even, you've got a questionnaire for the nervous system. Um, Have you? I read that in the book somewhere that you can fill in a form for the questionnaire. Oh, no, there's there's an online test. Oh, that's right, an online test. To see if you've learned everything in the book. Oh, yes, I thought I must The book is supposed to educate your prefrontal cortex to let you do the somatic work. Yeah, lovely. So there's a test to see if you've got it. Okay, I should be trying that later. I mean, you can get most of the stuff in the book for free on the website. So there's a blog with a lot of the ideas in it. Okay. Uh, you can download the 28-day recovery plan and do the exercises. Amazing. There's a couple of videos. The, as you said, the, the yeah. gazelle coming back to okay. life. There's a body scan video, yeah. but you, anyone can Google a body scan. Okay. So there's resources there. Yeah. Brilliant. And I, for one, will be putting it on my required reading list for anybody that comes to see me Good. Well, that's, for, uh, for work. Actually, that's one of the other reasons why I wrote it is because yeah. I'm aware that lots of practitioners spend an awful lot of time in session yeah. just trying to explain yes. this stuff. Yes. And I'm also aware it's not that easy to explain simply and clearly. Yeah. Um, I've tried for years and years and I've got a pretty analytical mind, a very good education. I found it very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's not, I mean, being able to successfully sit with someone as a clinician is not necessarily the same skill set as explaining something in yes. a clear, logical way yes. that makes sense. Yes. Um, so it's supposed to be a tool for exactly as you said. Yeah. You can say to a client, look, why don't you read this? And we can spend more time in our session yes. actually working yeah. rather than explaining. Yeah. And I think it can be helpful. Yeah. yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Benjamin. You're welcome. Thank you for your time and lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. Thanks. Thank you.